to Louisiana Lefty, a podcast about politics and community in Louisiana, where we make the case that the health of the state requires a strong progressive movement fueled by the critical work of organizing on the ground. Our goal is to democratize information, demystify party politics, and empower you to join the mission because victory for Louisiana requires you. On this week's episode, my guest is former state senator, John Paul or JP Morrell, who joined me to discuss his role in ending the discriminatory practice of non-unanimous juries in Louisiana. As JP tells it, it's a pretty wild tale that underscores how absolutely critical it is that we get our messaging correct. Because the unanimous jury coalition has been mentioned on so many Louisiana lefty episodes, and because I believe the effort created a network and a model that shows how we can win on progressive issues in our state, I wanted to devote a few episodes detailing how victory was achieved. A little background for this week's material. JP authored Senate Bill number 243 in the 2018 regular legislative session that proposed to put an amendment on a statewide ballot that would alter Louisiana's constitution. It required a two thirds vote from both the House and the Senate and passed on June 7, 2018. The simple text of Constitutional Amendment 2 that appeared on the November 6, 2018 ballot read, do you support an amendment to require a unanimous jury verdict in all non-capital felony cases for offenses that are committed on or after January 1st, 2019? A majority of Louisiana voters voted yes on two. If you're wondering what happened to defendants who were convicted by non-unanimous juries prior to January 1st, 2019, that was addressed by the Supreme Court on April 20th, 2020 in Ramos versus Louisiana. Organizing efforts continue to correct the wrongs done to people locked up unconstitutionally in Louisiana, and we'll address that on a future episode. JP Morrell, thank you for joining me on Louisiana Lefty today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Well, I always start each episode with how I met my guest, and we've known one another since you were in the Senate, in the state Senate. And I feel confident we met through the Independent Women's Organization because you used to come speak to us all the time about legislative. I, would, I honestly would say I think we probably met through Felicia. I agree. Because Felicia was like, I mean, she was the center of the universe for feminism in the city for so long. And you were one of the people that was constantly around Felicia. So I'm pretty sure that's how we met because she was, I mean, what I say is she was a fearless, tiny little woman who would always engage legislators on any issue, including the most progressive, difficult to pass, whatever bill she was there. And you were always kind of where with her. You're talking about Felicia Khan. Yeah. And uh, you're not you're not even the first person to mention that <laughs> they met me through Felicia Khan. But you were also a frequent flyer on the conference calls I did during legislative session when we uh, would inform volunteers for the Louisiana Democratic right. Party. So I appreciate that, that you came on and spoke to us. And I believe you spoke on the town hall we put together for John Bell Edwards' re-election. Yes, I did. I did 14, speak on 14,000 voters from across the state uh, on a call with y'all. So thank you for all you've done to help inform Louisianans over the years. It's, it's hard, but like every politician loves the opportunity to talk. 
but I can certainly say that I always felt like I was talking about substantive things whenever you tapped me. So I, I really appreciate the opportunity. And I was so glad we got John Bell over the hump and got him back in office because many of the things we've accomplished in the state would not have happened without John Bell being there. 100%. 100%. Well, before we get too far ahead of ourselves here, I would like for you to give us your political origin story. And mm. I believe I would know what it is, but there may be multiple listeners who wouldn't know how you got involved in politics. Well, it's funny because so my father was a legislator for 24 years and my mom uh, was a city council member for 10 years. My entire trajectory as a young person was to be a doctor. So I went to, I did not want to do with politics. I wanted to be a doctor. I went to pre-med stuff in high school, went to college and did very poorly in every science class. And I passed out the first time I saw blood, passed out on the floor, fell over, like passed out in the middle of a lab. So my teacher at the time, a guy named Dr. Dean took me aside and was like, this is not going to work, son. You are never going to be a doctor. And I was like, well, I mean, I've only been trying to be George Clooney for ER my whole life. And they just destroyed it. And he's like, well, I talked to your other professors. You're really good in all of the pre-law casework isn't your dad a lawyer? And I was like, I don't want to be a lawyer. My dad's a lawyer. So I ended up switching to pre-law and becoming a lawyer, which, yeah, so I'm a lawyer. So then I graduated law school. I went to work for the public defender's office and my dad got elected clerk of criminal court. And everyone was like, are you going to run for state representative? And I was like, no, I don't want to be a state representative. And I remember uh, Brian Egana, who was Oliver Thomas's chief of staff, decided to run. And at the time, I did not like Oliver. I did not like Brian. And I was like, this is my dad's legacy. He's just such an important seat. I'm going to run now. And so everybody was like, you're running? I'm like, I'm running. So like, literally, I tra- like, it really became more of a legacy issue of I was like, my dad did so much great stuff. Like he was... He was, he was in, he was, he went to the Supreme court over drug testing politicians. He fought I remember getting the death threats on him being pro-choice. And we used to get calls from right wingers telling us they were going to burn our house down. We're all going to hell. And that was transformative for a 12 year old kid to hear some random person from like Podunk, Louisiana praying for your demise or whatever. But it hit me that my dad had done all these things and that I was really concerned at the time at the person running would not be a continuation of that. So then I got in the race and it was probably the nastiest campaign I've ever been involved in. It was really personal. The ads were ridiculously personal. And to end that origin story at the end of that campaign, it was really nasty. I trailed in the runoff, pulled it off in the, in the runoff. And after it was over, Oliver Thomas put Brian again and I in a room and was like, you are two bright, young African-American men. You agree on 99% of things. You cannot hate each other forever. And he's like, politics are about addition, not subtraction. You two are better together. And we made up and Brian is one of my best friends now. So that's kind of my political origin story of how I got to in that. That's how I got to become a representative and that led to other things, but that was, that was my first race. And that's kind of how I got into politics. Well, I love that story. I love how it ends. And how many years were you in the legislature? 
in total, I was there for 14 years. Okay. Well, I really wanted to have you on as a guest because we've talked on several podcasts about unanimous juries and Constitutional Amendment 2 that got rid of the non-unanimous juries we had in Louisiana. When people ask me about doing the work here that's been done in Georgia and some other states, I say we've started that kind of work here already. I really see the unanimous jury story as a model for what we need to do to bring more progressive change to the state. I've argued that it's a really big part of the story of John Bell's reelection as well. But this should be a case study for anyone wishing to make progress in our state. Louisiana Lefty is really centered on the nuts and bolts of campaigns. So I want to walk folks through this campaign from the beginning over several episodes. While I served as the statewide field director for the campaign, you were there well before I was involved. For folks who aren't aware of what we're talking about, what was the problem that needed to be fixed by this unanimous juries amendment? So Louisiana was one of two states that allowed for an individual to be convicted of a felony without a unanimous jury. Uh, basically, it allowed that if two people did not agree with a guilty verdict, you could disregard them and convict someone on a, on a 10, 10 to 2 decision. Um, the origins of this uh, date back to the turn of the, the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th. It was post-Reconstruction. Uh, after the Yankees and the Union had been chased out of Louisiana, there was a convention convened by quite a few very bad people, very racist people. And the basis of that convention was to reassert the supremacy of the Anglo-Saxons over the African peoples. That was actually in the, in the text and in the, the debate of that convention. And one of the things that they agreed to was they did not want the uppity black people that had just been given all these rights to get out of being put in jail. So in that, in that, in that convention, they first passed a statute narrowly that changed the jury verdicts from 12 to nine, three, where if three people felt that you were not guilty or they did not meet the burden, you would still be convicted. And that number was specific because they basically estimated you could at max get three black people on a jury. So they want to nullify them. Um, they then followed up at the end of that, of that century by putting it in the constitution. Uh, and literally it was there, but people don't realize is post reconstruction in the South prisons were the replacement for plantations. And that the same black people used to work the work, the plantations, they would put them in prisons where they would make similar products for lower free labor and sell those products. So, I mean, the prison industrial complex in the South was the continuation of slavery and the fear that they were addressing and doing non-unanimous verdicts was that they want to make sure they were still able to put black people on the plantation to do the work and to punish and be able to cow black people to make sure that they knew that they were but a day away from being locked up and there was nothing they could do about it. Um, in 1974, uh, the, there was another constitutional convention and there was a guy from Alexandria who was Chris Roy, the representative's dad, Chris Roy senior. He brought up the non-unanimous jury verdicts and tried to fight it getting in the 1974 constitution in a typical kind of like, egalitarian like pseudo uh, just racist white where they're like you know what you're right 
shouldn't be nine out of three. We'll make it 10 out of two. Look, we gave you something. So it went from nine out of three to 10 out of two in the 74 constitution. It was that way until we changed it. So, I mean, that's the origins of it. That was the problem. Oregon had a similar uh, split jury allowance. The origins of that are very different where ours was built around a racism. Uh, theirs was centered around anti-Semitism. There was a series of very uh, high profile cases where uh, Jewish Americans were being charged with heinous crimes. And there was a tremendous anti-Semitic uh, like, like base, I guess, in Oregon that hated Jewish people. And they were so offended they couldn't lock these Jewish people up on these trumped up crimes. They changed their constitution to allow for split jury. So it was, it was insidious, but it was not nearly as well thought out and planned out as our awful version. So they're both bad. And they're both gone now because of the Supreme Court. But you were not only instrumental in this effort. You took the first leg of the relay, really. Did someone reach out to you specifically about this? Or was this something you wanted to do? Was there a debate about whether or not it should be on a ballot? Was there another way to go about doing this? It was in the Constitution, so you had to do a constitutional one to change it. You can't do it any other way. The Louisiana Association of Defense lawyers approached me about it and said hey we have this bill do you have a bill can you do this constitutional amendment and i looked at him and i said well first off admittedly i was only a def- uh, i was a public defender in orleans parish but i was only there for about a year and a half and i did processing of magistrate for bails so i didn't deal with jury trials and really, when they gave me the bill, I started to kind of research the issue because I hadn't really looked into it. Most of Louisiana, when we have crazy stuff on the books, we just think everyone has crazy stuff on the books. And I really, when I dug into it, I was like, this is really awful. And remember when I got the bill, I said, okay, guys, I'll do it. I don't think we can pass this. And they were like, they're like, we agree. So like the whole idea was to get the bill as far as we could to get record votes to build momentum for later passage. And we met with several different groups and this is kind of getting into mess. I mean, the messaging conversation. So they said, we want you to spear. I'm like, I will spearhead it, but I control the messaging. And they said, what do you mean? I said, this is a really controversial topic. And I said, your temptation as a group, because there are other groups kind of tangentially evolved. I said, what you're going to want to do is these groups are going to tell you, we're going to card in a bunch of families that have people convicted on non-unanimous jury verdicts how egregious and awful it is to people in New Orleans and African-Americans. And it was right around the same time the advocate was doing their story, researching how bad it is. Two things were happening like separately, but on the same track. And I said, I'm going to tell you something. Having been here at at that point, I think I was there for 11, 12 years. I said, that will not pass this bill. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, the average legislator is an old white guy. If you are challenging them to see how egregious this issue is from the perspective of an African-American family or a wrongly incarcerated African-American man, you will never pass this bill because they can't make that leap. They are not going to be able in their own heads to process it as an egregious affront to the African-American community. And they're kind of like, well, how do we tackle this? Then I said, because it's unconstitutional and it's wrong. Full stop, period. That's what we, like, what do you mean? I'm like, even the most non-engaged, non-civil rights-oriented Republican legislator 
worships the Bill of Rights. They worship the Bill of Rights. They worship the rule of law. And there are organizations out there at that time, like the Pelican Institute and libertarian leaning ones who hate government overreach. And they hate the idea of the government being able to easily incarcerate people on a whim. I said, this needs to be about this is unconstitutional. It's awful. It is a, makes us different than every other state, including other Southern states. And really it needs to be, the messaging has to be as inclusive as possible. And then furthermore, in order to get the two thirds vote in two houses that are almost two thirds Republican, you have to have Republican messaging. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I said, I researched this. Antonin Scalia was a dissenting opinion when this issue last went to the U.S. Supreme Court. He hated non-unanimous juries. He thought it was awful. He thought it was terrible. He thought it was another reason why Louisiana was backwards as hell. Like, he wrote a scathing dissent on this. That is what you bring to Republican legislators. Because the more you make this an affront to the Bill of Rights, an affront to process, and an ability for the government to lock people up in the easiest, most convenient way, that is how you pass this bill. And that was the messaging when we went into committee the first time to talk about it. And I would argue that there were probably more angry people in that first committee on this bill than there were on Nelson's marijuana bill. The sheriffs were there. The DAs were there. DAs more than sheriffs. DAs freaking hated this bill because it was an affront to the empirical demigods that are the DAs of, of district attorneys of Louisiana. They, they pride themselves on the ability that if you cross them, they can put your ass in jail. That is just kind of how they operate. I mean, I always tell people that aren't from here, if you've ever seen Cool Hand Luke, that is Louisiana still. Like, we can and will lock you up for no reason if we choose to do so. And I remember that as we were beginning that process, as we got up there, it was so hilarious because the DAs have been reading um, John Sermon and Gordon Russell's expose on non-unanimous juries. And they had written a whole playbook to argue against the racial implications of non-unanimous juries. Like they got there and like their whole messaging was, there's no proof we're targeting black people. Da, 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 da. And they weren't listening to what I was saying, which is I didn't mention any of that. I said, man, this is about, this is unconstitutional, advice the Bill of Rights, it allows for governmental overreach. And like they didn't address it. And then when we closed on it, I went on a, my tirade about Antonin Scalia and about how we're being laughed at by every other state. Look who's here. You've got You've got the ACLU, but you've got the Pelican Institute. You've got uh, Soros people, but you've got the Koch brothers. Like, this is something we can all agree on that no one should be locked up when one-sixth of the jury thinks that they shouldn't be. It is really an issue of it. it is a governmental overreach. And when it got out of committee, they lost their minds. Like, they really thought it was going to die. And I was like, huh, we got out of committee. I wasn't really expecting that. Okay, let's see what the next step is. So then we got on the floor of the legislature, of the, of the Senate, and we started vote counting. 
And we were like, we're going to run the bill when we have the best vote count and try and pass it. And we pulled and we waited, I want to say two or three weeks and we kept ticking it and we kept being three or four votes short. We could not get within the two thirds. And they were like, what do we do? We don't want to go up and lose. And I was like, listen, this bill was always about pushing the envelope to try and get things done. This bill was about exposing people to the idea, bringing light to the injustice and really like breaking this whole thing. And even if I'm not the person to pass it, I want to lay the path for someone to do it because like, it's that kind of saying like legacy is not about like eating the fruits of your labor. It's about planting the tree. So I was planting the tree on this. So we got down there and we started doing debate and it was like the surrogates on the floor took the same playbook from the committee meeting and used it again. And they were like arguing points that we weren't making and not responding to the points that we were making. And I saw people start to start paying attention in the legislature. Every vote is pretty much predecided. I mean, when you go to the floor of the, of the Senate or the house, you have the votes before the vote or you don't. And we did not have the votes, but I saw people starting to close their laptops, to close their books, to put down their phone and they started listening to us. And I was like, okay, wait a second. Like I'm beginning to feel we got a chance. Then Dan Clater got up, who's a Republican from Baton Rouge, a former ADA. And he just like, it was like, a vice episode he got up there and basically laid out because dan had not i think he had voted for it or was silent in committee no he would tell no one where he was at on it he was like completely keep it to the vest he went down there i was like i don't know if he's going down there forward against it i don't even know he spelled out as an ada it was like a confessing like a, somebody confessing their priest he was like this is horrible let me tell you how we abuse this as da's and he went into how if you are charged with the misdemeanor, they have to convict you on a unanimous verdict. But if you're charged with a felony, they have to, they can beat you on a non-unanimous verdict. And he was like, at the Orleans Parish DA's office, when I worked for Harry Connick, we would routinely overcharge people for crimes to force a non-unanimous jury trial. And the defense lawyers knew what we were doing and they knew their clients were screwed. So we would extort plea agreements out of them because they knew that they probably couldn't be, get a unanimous jury to acquit them. And he laid out like the awfulness of it. Like he laid out, like I'm against it because I saw this happen. Everything, everything you've heard from these advocates is true. This is wrong. And like at that point, there was everyone was engaged and that is when i started getting senators calling me over and they'd say listen i was a no i just called my dm a yes now and like it just started like snowball like no i was a no i called my dm a yes now and i was like holy shit like we just and so i went down there i took danny martini gave me advice years ago he was i think it was a no vote on this but he gave great advice he said never come up never go down to that well and come back with less than you started with. So I had a very powerful closing, but it was very neutral in this presentation because we were on the line of passing this bill and then we passed it. And at that point, 
all hell broke loose of the DAs. They were freaking the hell out at that point. They were just like, what is happening? The sky is purple. Our entire like entire like power base is being attacked. And that got us to the infamous, the infamous uh, House committee hearing where we had DeRozier, where we had a the DA DeRozier from Calcasieu Parish come in. So we had the same DA pulled the same playbook out from floor from Senate committee. This is about these guys talking about racism and there's no racism. The difference was, is that people like Ted James were on that committee. He's like, Oh no, this shit is racist. Like I'm going to talk about how racist this is. We stayed on message saying, Nope, apple pie, America bill of rights. And I remember one interaction I had with uh, John Stefanski where he said, I'm going to ask you one question, Senator Morrell. Where was Antonin Scalia on this? And I quoted Scalia, and I remember Stefanski looking at me and going, this is good enough for Scalia, good enough for me. I'm okay. Like, And then DeRozier got up there after Ted had his rant and said, okay, let's just admit this. This thing came from it came from some racist place. It was racist. And he gave this whole rant about how Volvo and Volkswagen built planes for the Nazis, but people still drive them. And even though the technology came from Nazis, it was okay. And just like that, non-unanimous juries, yeah, they were born of racism, but they're a tool for prosecutors to get the bad guys. And he ended it by saying, it is what it is. And then after he spoke, there was this DA from some like North North Shore jurisdiction who was like listen talk about how racist this is i once prosecuted a white man for killing a black man and ted looked at the guy from the north shore and said you did your job do you want a cookie like you prosecuted someone for murder you want a cookie like why are you telling me it was a black guy versus a white guy that's ridiculous like that's like saying you got a black friend. You're not racist. Like Ted Law, they look at the He goes, "It is what it is. It is what it is. That should be on a billboard where you where you live. That you're okay with locking people up because it's because that's just the way it's been." And like, it was funny because going into that committee, it was on a razor's edge of getting it out of the committee. And I, I can't for life remember the vote. The vote wasn't close. Those DAs literally passed that bill. Going down there saying crazy crap. I mean. I thought I had the votes, but it was like overwhelming how it got out of there. And the chair of that committee was Sherman Mack, who was about the most hang'em pro DA person you've ever met. He came to me after that was over and he goes, JP, you know where I'm at. She's like, like, yeah, I know Sherman. You hate, I want to carry this bill on the floor of the house. And I was like, wow. I was like, Sherman, you're asking me to like, to, to like give you my child when I know you've murdered similar children. And he was like, I know, but you got to trust me. I want to pass this. Give it to me. And I was like, okay, I'm giving you my child, even though you are a murderer of criminal justice babies. And he did an amazing job. He actually had this great quote where he said, it's time. We have to move past this time. And it passed. And I'm sure you've covered that is when I handed this issue over to the advocates across the state and the networks. But I want to tell you one story about when y'all were passing it and when we're working to pass it statewide, I was doing a interview with a radio station in new Orleans and I got a call from Blake Miguez and Blake Miguez. If you're a, a lefty, 
he's like the antichrist. I mean, he is like the, like, I hate everything progressive. And he called me, he said, Hey JP. I'm like, Hey, what's up, Blake? He's like, I want to talk to you about something. I was like, what? He goes, I just cut an ad for non-unanimous juries, like to get rid of it. And I was like, okay, that's great. He goes, but listen, I know you don't like guns in the ad. I want to tell you what I did. And I'm like, okay, well, Blake, tell me what you did. He goes, I got, I've got an AK 47 and I'm shooting a target. And then I look in the camera and say, if you don't vote to get rid of non-unanimous juries, they may come and take your guns. I'm, I'm not proud. If, if that gets me the most to pass this thing, you go ahead and do it, Blake. And I'm sure that ad might still be the internet somewhere, but he really is just shooting targets talking about don't let them take your guns, vote to repeal non-unanimous juries, but strange bedfellows. That's, those are my, that's my story and my anecdote of non-unanimous juries. That is a wild story. And it's <laughs> unique in the legislature because we know those of us who follow the legislature, things don't normally go that way. And it sounds like there was a little bit of magic to your point and i know you said it in previous podcasts it's all about messaging yes and there was a moment where had i not aggressively taken over messaging and made it in a way that was inclusive and allowed everybody to have some ownership of the issue regardless of their partisan or conservative or liberal leanings that thing was doa it was just dead i think what i always tell nonprofit groups on whatever issue they're dealing with is that you need to make your issue about the issue and not about the partisan like lean. Cause some issues are inherently kind of democratic issues. Some issues are kind of inherently Republican issues. And if you allow yourself to get pigeonholed as a Democrat or Republican issue, it's like you're giving up some votes to begin with. Like um, when we did raise the age um, we did the bill we had, which will fall with DAs and sheriffs again. I mean, honestly, I think those guys would I think they're happy. I'm not in the legislature anymore, but those guys were not big fans of mine at times. And basically in Louisiana, we were one of, I want to say like, might be the only state left where we automatically prosecuted 17 year olds as adults. So if a kid commits a heinous crime, a DA in any state can choose to charge that kid as an adult. There's a process they have to go through to get authorized to do it. In Louisiana, there was no process. You get a 17-year-old, you're an adult, you're going to adult prison, you're an adult. No state does that. We were the last one. It was stupid. And I had a bill called Raise the Age, which was about raising the age of juvenile prosecution. And that was one where there was a lot of intellectual argument about why it was important and why it wasn't important. And that was a time where the messaging went the opposite way, where when I was talking with the advocates, I said, you know what, all these professors and sociologists about brain development, let's not use them. They're like, why? I was like, aren't y'all busting up kids? And I was like, yeah, I was like, let the kids talk. And when we were in committee and I'm going to try to get teary eyes, I always get teary eyes when I talk about it. When we're in committee and we're doing that bill and there was a bunch of kids from inner city high schools in New Orleans and they were literally talking about how their friends would get picked up for like minor felonies, like they were in a car while someone was joyriding and they would go to OPP for like three months, four months. And they were like, my friend Jacob came back and he was broken. Like he was never Jacob again. He was a broken, damaged person. He stopped coming to school. He stopped talking to his friends. He started hanging out with a different crowd who understood what he had gone through. And like when 
testimony of testimony that came out like there were grown legislators black and a white republican and democrat who were like crying they were like you can't do this to kids and i was like 17 year olds are children and doesn't matter what this da says or sheriff says you have a 17 year old child or you have a 17 year old nephew do you think they're an adult and they were like i mean no one's gonna say yeah i think you know jimmy who still wears this you know plays xbox too much and doesn't know what he like everyone when you make it about the humanity of kids and of relating to the idea of children that's what passed that bill but the messaging was different because that bill was about being able to find an issue that presented a perspective that everyone could relate to it that did not exist with non-unanimous juries but on raise the age it did and that is why the messaging was different it wasn't partisan it was you know a 17 year old kid do you think 17 year olds are adults and that is what passed that bill so it's just the messaging is so key because it will differ by the subject and there is no universal messaging silver bullet that you have of like say it's progressive say it's conservative say it's for democrats say it's republicans it's the issue the issue it's all about the issue when we got to the point of working to pass the constitutional amendment your point is well made they really did practice a lot of message discipline on that campaign they really pushed for instance that it was discriminatory while telling us you know please don't bring up jim crow please don't start talking about jim crow to the voters that's going to kill this so there was a very strict messaging discipline on that campaign. And you wrote the actual amendment, right? And that was part of what made the job easier because it was very simple to understand. I guess to give kind of the background. So when you pass a constitutional amendment, they don't print the amendment when you walk in the ballot box, they print like a three sentence description of what the amendment does. And people, it is amazing how if you write the wrong three sentences, something will pass or fail. Uh, a good example is with non-unanimous juries, we kept it completely dry, which basically, and I'm paraphrasing, we said, this, this constant amendment holds that people can only be convicted with a unanimous jury, not with a jury that is a split jury. And when you read that as someone who watches, I mean, there are many people, the average person had no idea we had non-unanimous juries. They watch Law and Order and see hung juries all the time. Like, oh, that one person, what's on? No. So for a lot of them, they were being educated like, wait a second, we don't already have that. And because the messaging was so ridiculously dry, it worked. I'll give you an example of when the messaging doesn't work. Um, Matthew Willard had a bill that dealt with giving New Orleans the ability to have very have a have the ability to give varying degrees of relief to people on property taxes and he passed the constitutional amendment through the legislature the messaging said do you believe essentially in paraphrasing do you believe the city of new orleans should have the flexibility to lower property taxes if you know how the rest of the state feels about the city of new orleans the moment you mentioned giving New Orleans the ability to have lower taxes, that thing was DOA as hell. Like it was never going to pass. And when I saw that messaging, this is our, I was at the legislature, I was like, oh, that's not passing. Like it doesn't matter. You can have a 
you can have a they had a press tour over it the, the mayor went across the state talking to people and like doesn't matter the voter's gonna walk in the booth in shreveport and be like wait, wait, wait why am i not getting property taxes lowered hell no like and that's what happened it i mean it got it got obliterated but that messaging to your point carries through not just on the political messaging it's like everything that touches that issue has to be carefully written and there has to be complete discipline to make sure that all the front facing things do not alienate the voters you need to pass it. And Carpley eventually got on board with the unanimous juries. Did you have other DAs or former DAs? No, Ed Tarpley, and Ed Tarpley was a former DA. He was a former parish, parish DA for, for Grant Parish. He was essential. I'll give you Ed Tarpley and Rob Manis were both essential in getting support for that bill. And I mean, people, people now watch Rob Manis on Twitter and he's like a caricature of like a Trumpian Republican, but like on this issue, he was, he was on point. Like he was, he fought at the state level because the DAs tried to lobby the Republican party to come out against it. And Rob Manis fought the Republican party to make them not come out against it. So, I mean, Ed Tarpley was essential because he really, I mean, he, Ed Tarpley is a much better criminal lawyer than I am. And he was able to give much more meat to anecdotal, anecdotal stories and to give a lot of more clear answers when there was a lot of mechanical argument against it. And he was great. He's a Republican. He was tremendous and helped pass the bill, but no, I mean, I mean the, the DA from Shreveport, uh, the one that Soros helped elect, whose name escapes me right now, he argued the DA's association shouldn't come out against it, but he's, he's not Jason. Like, Jason would have been up there arguing for it. Like, he kind of made his overture at it and then kind of took a back seat and didn't really get involved. But, no, I mean, other than, other than a former DA, we didn't really didn't get much help from any DA's former or current at that time. What makes the right so interested in criminal justice reform? I think that like, and I guess it's, uh, I'm often accused of being too moderate. And I mean, I think sometimes it's a fair criticism on, on kind of my political philosophy on how to be successful. Cause I mean, my, my political career before I became a politician, before I became a lawyer, I worked for John bro before I went to law school. So like I, I saw how he navigated Congress and the challenge you have is that it's easy to find when you're dealing with, with political issues, ways to disagree on any issue. You could find a, a conservative and liberal position and argue those points with criminal justice reform. It's really easy to find commonalities where both sides have buy-in um, about the only thing that's still really difficult with CJR is gun reform. But for most other issues, whether it's incarceration, with incarceration, even under Jindal, we had success in lowering incarceration and, and increasing the opportunities for reentry because the business community got involved, the conservative business community involved because they said, listen, we've got a job, we've got a, we've got a job force, a workforce problem. There are too many people going to jail and they come out and we have to hire people from other states because they can't pass background checks because they get arrested for BS like marijuana. And it's a scarlet letter because depending on what industry you're in, if you're in the, 
boat building or shipping industry and people have to get port clearance, there are instances in which the federal government won't give you a clearance because you've got a felony conviction. So like it became an economic development issue for, for them when it came to other issues regarding criminal justice reform. When you crunch the numbers on how much money we spent out of budgets on incarcerating people for true fiscal conservatives, they're like, this is dumb. Like I'm being taxed for bad policy. So those were the kind of commonalities that got conservatives to get heavily engaged on reform efforts and why they leaned into it. It wasn't because they woke up one day and were like, I'm a liberal. It was someone came to them with a different perspective and said, you should not like this because of X. I mean, the Pelican Institute, though they have some wackadoodle kind of leanings, and so does AFP, on some criminal justice stuff, they are very much on the reform side because it's against sound tax policy to dump money into a black hole that lasts forever. And for Louisiana, the amount of money we spend on prisons, both public and private, it's like you're throwing money in a fireplace. Cause I mean, you get no return on this. It's not an investment. The people you lock up, you're paying for their healthcare. You're paying for everything. That's all wasted state money. And those people never reenter society, never become taxpayers from a fiscal perspective for conservatives, it makes sense to, we should break that system. That's kind of their perspective. Okay. You mentioned Jason, you met Jason Williams by that, who was newly elected DA here in New Orleans. Are there other cities you know of in Louisiana where we could replicate his kind of campaign and the work his team is now doing? I mean, I think... There's certainly states, there's certainly, all the major cities are certainly capable of replication. Baton Rouge is a great example. Baton Rouge, Shreveport, Shreveport is where you had some success with George Soros. We had success in kind of moving progressive messaging. It's not exactly the same because there is no city for the most part that is as progressive as New Orleans. There's nuance to it, but for the most part, it can be replicated in those areas. What's very surprising is people really underestimate how many small towns across the state have majority African-American populations, have majority African-American council members and executives, and have African-Americans as police chiefs. DAs is a little harder because when you go to these towns, if they're small, you have DAs that represent multiple parishes. It's harder to get that leverage on a DA, but there's no reason why you couldn't replicate that kind of progressive movement on a small, easier scale and reform these small townships where they're not locking up their own citizens for BS to fund the the parish. Like, I mean, it's, it's certainly something that can be replicated. The challenge is, is really building the organized infrastructure to do so. I think from my perspective, the reason part of what helped Biden is people like Stacey Abrams running for governor and Beto O'Rourke running for Senate in Texas, because even though those races were not successful, they were unapologetically progressive and they took all the money that they raised to build an infrastructure that they knew would outlast their campaigns. What happened in Georgia is possible in Louisiana. 33% of our population as African-American, we have a greater percentage of African-Americans in Louisiana than Georgia has in Georgia. It's just they're a group that's never been engaged in any kind of holistic way 
to turn them into permanent voters. Because think about it. I mean, that, 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 that would be transformative. If, if you knew 30% of the elected, uh, electorate was African-American voters who would vote every cycle, the lift to win statewide offices becomes a lot more manageable at that point. Well, I often make the argument that there are groups building infrastructure here. And right. again, unanimous juries to me is one of the networks of groups that I do believe is building infrastructure here. To your point, and people didn't see me nodding furiously when you're talking about Stacey Abrams and Beto O'Rourke, but neither of those infrastructures were built through the party. You know, the powered by the people. Stacey has, you know, a couple of different groups like the New Georgia Project that she's passed on, but Fair Fight Georgia. There are infrastructures built there that can work with the party, but aren't in the party themselves. So I think that that can be done here also. Well, I mean, it, it, to that to that point, it's almost like if we had the right progressive candidate to run for national office across the state, that would be the mechanism to do it. I mean, almost like it would be really interesting. Kennedy seats coming up. If we got, if you got a progressive person legitimately take a shot at that on a progressive platform, especially with the Senate being so razor thin, the only problem you have with Louisiana is that if we, Stacey Abrams really had created through all the work she did on a, in, in, in building the grassroots network, she had proof positive for people to give money for her gubernatorial race to like be a credible candidate. It's almost like you need, you need to have enough of a network to build faith on the national level that that race could be competitive. But if you could get that done, and I mean, obviously you said people are already doing the work and the, the Senate majority is so razor thin, it's more about just convincing the national donors to fund the infrastructure for that senatorial candidate, which could potentially outlast them. Now, finding the right candidates also key because people like Stacey and Beto had really impressive records leading up to it and were very inspirational candidates that had great messages and presented very well. We have to find someone on that level to do that. And I mean, one of our biggest problems politically as Democrats is that we have no reputable farm system at all. I mean, Republicans, the, the good news about the terrible Trumpers is they kind of broke the Republican farm system in itself because there used to be a system where Republicans did a really robust job of like farming up their own candidates through their own process where they were trained, kind of fed their talking points, you know, working as staffers and worked their way up traditionally to be elected. And that's kind of like where you get a Luke Letlow for from Luke Letlow was like the traditional farm Republican candidate up through the ranks person. Now, the crazy guy in Lafayette with the John Wayne guy, what's his name? Uh, terrible. Clay Higgins? Clay Higgins. Clay Higgins is an example of what happens when you don't farm a candidate up. He's a Republican. He got elected. He's cuckoo crazy, but he's a Trumper. We as Democrats don't do enough to take people who want to be engaged in the process. Emerge is a great example of like someone trying to do that, but we really need to do a better effort of identifying people that really want to be elected, training them and making them run for competitive offices. Now I say that in that I don't begrudge Democrats running against Democrats, 
that's not where the training is. That happens organically. In places like New Orleans, it's all Democrats running as Democrats, but we should be targeting seats that are even remotely competitive and farming candidates up locally to run for those seats. We don't do any of that. And I mean, that is a deficiency in the party that we either need to correct on a party level or correct, like you said, on a grassroots level of someone like, I mean, Emerge is the one that comes to mind because they're actively doing it, but there are other groups that could just, just as easily be doing the same thing. I mean, it's just, that's a missed opportunity in that, I always joke that like it's whenever you give a Republican a pass in the state that are running for reelection in a competitive seat, you're just freeing up Republican money to steal into the Democratic seat. Like when they're not competitive races, those donors don't put that money back in their pockets. They go spend it in a more competitive race to give more resources to someone who's in another competitive race. You have to attack on multiple fronts. So would you run for statewide office? No, no. And I'll tell you why. Uh, uh, two things. One, my kids could not handle it. You know, I've got I've got a 12 year old son, a 10 year old daughter, and a four year old son, and they struggled with me being in Baton Rouge. They struggled with it. I mean, they I did not realize till later, like when I was near leaving, how bad it had been for them. Like they yeah. really struggled with my time in Baton Rouge, and. I don't have it in me. I love my kids to be away from them that much. And a statewide office being with few exceptions requires you to be in Baton Rouge pretty much constantly. You have to uproot your family and move there for the most part. And I don't think it, I don't think they have it in them. At least, I mean, I, I guess maybe 20 years from now, I might look at it when my kids are old and they don't, and they, they're, they're from under me. Actually, no, Alex is 14 in 14 years. I might look at it, but right now, no, nah, I mean, I, I, I like being a dad. That's kind of my primary thing. The other thing is, is that there was a time when I was younger where I looked at it really hard and the Don Cravens Jr. race kind of broke me of that for a couple of years. Uh, Don Cravens Jr. ran for Congress against Charles Bustani years ago. I was still in the House and he was in the Senate and his voting record. He had carefully curated his voting record. He was pro-life, pro-gun pro everything you need it to be like he was all these groups that are they're all like ridiculous they all tell you as a democrat if you vote you know for pro-life gene mills the family forum they're with you too like he did all that stuff and charles bustani was at that time i don't know now but at the time there was no comparison between the two of them and all those groups turned on him and they started attacking this super conservative, moderate Democrat. And basically they took all the national democratic messaging and just pasted it on his face. Mm-hmm. And he got obliterated by Charles Bustani. And, and like the democratic party didn't help him. No one really helped him. He just ran his race and the inherent institutional racism towards the party on supporting African-American candidates for statewide office. That is where it really hit me. I mean, this is a guy who is a super impressive state senator running for a competitive seat. And because he was a black guy running, they gave him no resources, no defense. The people, all the groups that he had carefully curated support him all deserted him. And I was just like, it just, it broke me for a couple of years of even looking at stuff. So I was like, if that guy can't be successful, he was like, he was to me at that time. I mean, 
just generally, I really like Don Cravens Jr. He, we we bonded over the fact that both our dads are old and crazy and, and were elected. Like we're good friends, but I was like, if you can't be successful, how the hell am I going to be successful? Like I was like, nope, I'm just going to be a legislator. Like I just took that idea, stayed while I was like threw it in the back. And I mean, things have changed to some degree. I think with the party, I think Karen's time there sort of changed that too. But there is an institutional racism in the Democratic Party statewide where you have white Democrats in rural areas where they'll vote for John Bell and in the same breath, there could be a black John Bell right under him and they'll go, nope. <laughs> and I mean, until we, until you prove to credible black candidates that this state's in a different perspective or that we've engaged the African-American electorate throughout the state to a point we can be competitive, it's going to be hard to get any credible black elected official to run statewide without that infrastructure because otherwise they're kind of sacrificial lambs to the altar of getting other white Democrats elected. JP, besides being a dad now, you've had a podcast since before podcasts were cool. Ask JP. So you still have that. Yeah. And, and I really enjoyed doing it. It began, the idea of Ask JP was that I used to get a lot of questions from people, like emails, like, I want to ask you about this. And I was kind of like, huh? Well, I mean, 10 people are asking the same question. Maybe people would care enough if I just like went on there and got people who knew more than me to discuss the issue. So the original Ask JP was mostly like people ask questions about Medicare. So I got someone from that dealt with Louisiana state government with health, the Department of health to come in, talk about Medicare and stuff like that. And it was a real rewarding experience. I really enjoyed it. I was really into it right until the governor got elected and made me the chair of revenue and fiscal affairs. And we had to solve the $2 billion budget shortfall. And then all of my private time other than dadding just evaporated immediately. So my four years, my last four years in the legislature were the hardest years of my life as a legislator, just because the needs were so, I mean, the fate of the state being solvent was on my shoulders with the governor. So I couldn't do it anymore for a while. And then once I left, like I started like kicking it around and recently, like it started with the, uh, the huge slate of criminal justice reform races tied to the DA and tied to the uh, judges. Uh, I brought it back up and it had a good response. I picked no horses. I'm even races where I'd endorsed. I invited everybody and everybody got a platform to kind of sell themselves. And I'd like to think that for people like great example, Angel Harris, who was running for judge, that Ask JP interview was really helpful to her insofar as like she was a really impressive candidate with zero money, like zero money compared to the incumbent. And it gave her a platform with someone who kind of knew the issues to kind of like say what her ideas were. And I mean, I was it was funny because none of the media was covering any of the judicial races. So like people didn't there were not debates where people could see people like argue the issues. And by default, my podcast kind of became like the platform of if you want to see one, see someone tell you what kind of judge they'd be, go watch the Ask JP. And it was very helpful. It was very gratifying. We did one episode on Amendment 1. I uh, did with uh, I did with Michelle over at uh, Lyft. And I did an interview with Morgan LaMadre recently on the LSU sexual assault stuff. And we have some other stuff we're getting planned, but like, 
it's turned more into like this issue seems like something I'm interested in. I will occasionally do a podcast on it. And I don't have the discipline you have, Linda, to like build a podcast, like a real podcast. This is more like I'm going to spitball over this issue because I really want to talk to someone to have an intelligent conversation about it. And I could probably do it over coffee, but maybe other people might be interested in that issue. So let's just record it kind of thing. Well, I'm going to link to it in the podcast notes. So if folks have not already discovered it, they yeah, it's it's super interesting. I mean, it's just just don't expect your like Linda, you're going to get an episode every like week. Me, you'll get an episode when I feel like it. So well, that's the fair difference. Enough. Fair. It takes, that's the difference. Yeah, it's all the pieces of the puzzle that come together. Right. Right. So is there other work you're doing right now that folks should know about that they might want to plug into? Uh, not really. I mean, I've got a big presence on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, for whatever Facebook's worth. Um, all of those things are the same. There is like at JP Morrell. So I I was an early adopter of technology. So I got my actual name as opposed to some like weird acronym, like go J4 JP or whatever, just JP Morrell everywhere. And I'm pretty active and I engage with people on that. I have a lot of fun with that because people, especially on Twitter, people really make poignant comments like, I've got this bromance with Skooks that goes back for years where uh, he trolls me over my love of Hamilton on a regular basis. And I troll him by linking new Hamilton things. So, I mean, like (laughs) I enjoy enjoy Twitter because you can have these kind of weird relationships with strangers, but um, no, I mean, I I do that stuff. I still get tapped occasionally to work with legislators on stuff. Like they'll ask me for advice. Um, I've done a lot of work with people on stuff like the, uh, trying to repair, like I said, the sexual, the sexual assault on college campus legislation and stuff like that. And I, I enjoy kind of pinch hitting on that. I don't want to go back to Baton Rouge, but I like to still be engaged. Occasionally I get tapped by nonprofits to come in and to uh, help educate people on that stuff. I serve on a lot of boards that I enjoy. I'm on the board of the children's museum, city park, and I'm on the board of STAR, uh, Sexual Trauma Awareness and Response. So those are all very gratifying. I'm kind of all over the place. Well, I've got my lightning round. Last three questions for you. Okay. What is the biggest obstacle for progressives in Louisiana, in your opinion? I think that progressives burn out because they want progress to happen immediately. And when you're in a state as entrenched in conservatism, you have to really have reasonable expectations of where you want to go and build towards it. Like I think people, people who just get engaged in politics who are progressive, they're like, I want to change the world tomorrow. And I think that they forget people like Elijah Cummings and people who've been before them who realize that you don't change the world tomorrow. You change the world over your lifetime or you lay the groundwork for the next people to change the world. So, I mean, the biggest challenge is I'm afraid people are going to burn out because when they don't get it, like when I see people after the last congressional race who are very disappointed, their person didn't win. And they're like, I'm just done. I'm checking out. I'm like, you can't do that. Like you have to get up the next day. You have to put your, your progressive boots and gloves back on and go back to work because at the end of the day, what people who don't support progressive values do is they count on you getting burnt out. So what's the progressive's biggest opportunity? Oh, I think C I think CJR is the biggest opportunity. I mean, the, 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 honestly, if we can create a state where everyone is not locked up for nothing, 
prosecuted for nothing, that their interactions with law enforcement don't result in death, bullshit charges or arrests, and people are able to live their lives without fear of sudden incarceration, I think it creates an environment where people just take the time to breathe and really study issues and hopefully take another look at progressive platforms. Plus, with moderate Republicans, people don't realize what moderate Republicans and independents, Republicans, conservatives do a really good job of vilifying Democrats as like socialists and Marxists. I mean, I think the Hayride recently called me the greatest threat to the of patriotism. I'm a Marxist from a family of Marxists. That's how much the Hayride likes me, which you're defined by your enemies. I love the fact the Hayride is so terrified of me, but the, the, the more you interact with people over issues across the state that there's general consensus on, the more that independents in particular see progressives as people who have reasonable goals and reasonable ideals, the more likely they are to listen to your other ideas. Because really it's about once you get past preconceptions and you see right now, like Ted Cruz talking about the radical left, the Republicans are really good at defining what progressives are. It's our job to defy those definitions and to define ourselves. And CJR gives progressives the opportunity to define themselves and to have success in, in a collaborative way. And I think that's where the opportunity is. That's, that's what progressives should be. Solid points, JP. Well, I've been excited to ask you the last question because I know you're a big comic book guy. Yes. Free question, since how old? When did you get into comic books? Oh, I've been reading comic books since I could read. I mean, honestly, I think, uh, I mean, honestly, and my son, Jude, the oldest is the same way. I learned how to read from comics. Like my parents, I mean, obviously I didn't, I wasn't reading like, I wasn't like chewing on a comic book when I was a toddler or anything, but like I got engaged by comic books. My third and fourth grade teacher Miss Sabrina Mays, who many people know, she is like a cultural icon in the city. Yeah, yeah, she 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 has known me longest, and she knew me when I like ate my boogers and stuff. She was so great in that she would see what interests you, and she would encourage it. I loved comic books, I loved cartoons, and she was like, "Here's some comic books, read some comic books," and like that. My my voracious reading habit my immense vocabulary comes from reading comic books. And I mean, I read other books now, obviously too, but that when I was a kid, like I was always reading comics. And then as I got older, I really began to understand the depth to which comic books tackle huge social justice issues. Um, it's funny because like, this is not, this, 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 this is just a lead into whatever your next question is, but like, people don't understand how important it was when Stan Lee created Black Panther. When Stan Lee created Black Panther, it was the middle of the civil rights movement. And black, the term Black Panther in itself was incendiary. And Stan Lee created a character who was an African superhero from the most advanced tech country in the world in Africa. And I mean, it was a way for people before they even knew about civil rights as children, they were normalized the fact that you can have an African person be ridiculously intelligent from a super technological space who's a leader of people. Like comic books are tremendously subversive 
when it comes to progressive ideology. I mean, right now, people are losing their minds over the fact that Coates is writing Captain America right now. And it's because Captain America, in the current run, he's vilifying internet memes in internet groups and parallels to like the Proud Boys and how they're the new Red Skull to the point where you have conservative pundits who are complaining to Marvel that he's calling Proud Boys Nazis. And it's like, they are the new Nazis that Captain America is going to punch in the face. But that's, I've, I was in the comics before I understood them. But after I understood them, I was like, wow, these are, these are great. Like this just was my place. So who is your favorite superhero? This is a hard one because I love a lot of superheroes for a lot of different reasons. But my favorite, and if you watch the preview, you saw it in the background, I love Daredevil. And I love Daredevil because on, on a basic level, he is a differently abled superhero, probably one of the first. because He's a blind person who is a superhero. So on that level, he's very interesting. That's like a one level. Then you go a level above it. He is a personification of the idea of justice. The whole idea behind his creation, when Stan Lee created Daredevil, he was literally inspired by the idea that justice is blind. So he created a blind lawyer who is a superhero. And it's really part of like the, 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 the center core of who Daredevil is. He is constantly concerned with justice. He is one of the few superheroes where he's just as committed to finding the bad guy as to proving the wrongly accused of being innocent because he's a defense lawyer. He's not even a prosecutor. He's a defense lawyer, criminal defense lawyer. So, I mean, like, he's so nuanced. Um, I encourage people two things. One, if you want to read Daredevil, read the Mark Wade run. It's the most one of the most recent ones. It was the best nuanced one. It's easy to get into. It's great. But if you're going to watch Daredevil, do not watch the movie. It is bad. Just full stop. Bad. Do not watch it. Watch the Netflix series. Everyone has Netflix. Watch the Netflix series. But that's now Daredevil is Matt Murdock is a tremendously nuanced character, recovering alcoholic, completely conflicted over his over his Catholicism. He's com- consistently conflicted by just a really amazing character but i mean i could have named 50 other ones but i'll go with daredevil because otherwise i'll be here for like six hours well that's a perfect answer i think for you jp as always i appreciate your time your knowledge your wit and your dedication to making louisiana a better place thank you so much for coming on louisiana lefty thank you so much for having me i I love being here and i will certainly make you return the favor when i want to talk about organizing on ask jp because you are one of the most prolific and active and effective organizers in the state. And that's an area when it comes to organization that I am not familiar as familiar with as I should be. And I think people would love to hear the, your perspective on my podcast on um, what it's like organizing in this ridiculously conservative state. Happy to do it, JP. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Louisiana Lefty. Please subscribe to our podcast and then follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to Ben Collinsworth for producing Louisiana Lefty, Jennifer Pack of Black Cat Studios for our Super Lefty artwork, and Thousand Dollar Car for allowing us to use their Swamp Pop Classic Security Guard as our Louisiana Lefty theme song.